0: Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. We're very glad to have you here with us today and our online audience. If you have questions, uh, you can uh, send them to Hudson events. Is that right? Hashtag Hudson events uh, for questions for our for our guests today. Before we get started, let me just announce a couple of upcoming events. On July 15th, we'll have Kathy Brown, head of the Internet Society, who will be speaking about uh, security and Internet governance. I'm sure you won't want to miss that. And then on July 20th, we will have Senator Deb Fischer of Nebraska will be speaking about the Internet of Things and other things uh, uh, that should be of great interest. But today, uh, we're very pleased to have with us Greg Sinek, who is uh, one of the leading uh, economists and uh, specialists in the area of law and economics uh, in the world. Uh, he is one of the most prolific uh, authors of academic uh, articles in this area, as well as articles uh, that have more of a policy bent. Uh, he, I've known Greg, uh, well, probably since we were in kindergarten, it seems like. yeah, It's been, uh, it's been many years. Good, uh, good times, and uh, Greg is uh, has always been one of the uh, leading uh, thinkers here in Washington. Always thinking about uh, problems that uh, are both uh, current and problems that will be uh, on the horizon for many years to come. And today we're we're very fortunate to have Greg. He's recently come out with a paper on uh, antitrust issues related to uh, patent policy at the IEEE. Why, not, why don't you begin by telling
1: us what the IEEE is, how it got started, and what it does? Sure. Let me ask, how many of you in the audience are carrying a cell phone? Just a show of hands. Okay. And how many of you have a smartphone? Okay. So Just, just about everybody. Your smartphone, I just went out and got the new Apple the other day. Uh, is a device that uses many patents uh, developed by many different uh, companies, uh, and of course, this is this is an Apple. You know, you, you may have a Samsung or some other brand, and they interoperate with one another. You can use one to, to call somebody who uh, uses a different uh, device. Why is that? Well, it's because There are standards that were set for mobile communications by uh, the various uh, companies that developed technology in this area, the companies that intended to be manufacturers of the consumer devices and other uh, interested parties such as universities, uh, research uh, institutions. Uh, And the standards uh, were set up for For example, how a call would be transferred from this device to the the nearest base station. Um, How the the echo on your voice would be canceled so the sound quality would be better. How the battery life would be extended so this would be um, vastly superior to the early cell phones where the battery might go down in half an hour's time. Standard setting organizations are voluntary contractual institutions. The IEEE is one of these, and it is responsible uh, for setting standards uh, involving many electrical and electronic devices. Uh, With respect to smartphones in particular, which is uh, the main focus of what I'll be talking about today, uh, the, the contribution of the IEEE has been to set the standard for Wi-Fi, some, a standard known as 802.11. So your cell phones, your tablets, your your laptops, and so forth, uh, uh, are using uh, technology uh, that uh, is standardized through the uh, working group uh, decisions, proposals, and 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 ultimately the the. the uh, the votes of the members of the standard-setting organization at the IEEE to um, solve particular technological problems in a particular way so that everybody is, uh, if you will, driving according to the same rules of the road so that there's this interoperability between uh, devices. Uh, The IEEE, uh, as I say, uh, developed the standards for Wi-Fi for 2G and 3G and 4G uh, uh, mobile communications uh, those standards were tr- uh, developed by by Etsy which is the, the European telecommunication standards um, Institute uh, and these are uh, they're not standards set by government and you, know, you could have the government for example on color television uh, in the 50s saying this is the standard or or more recently yeah right so standard setting by government is one alternative to standard-setting organizations. You could have a proprietary standard where one company becomes dominant and all the other companies basically have to uh, design their products around that. You might say that uh, Microsoft, you know, became the standard for uh, operating systems for personal computers for many years. Uh, but standard-setting organizations are cooperative, contract-based institutions uh, that Uh, have evolved over the last several decades uh, to facilitate uh, the development of standards for consumer products that then can be marketed um, to millions or billions of customers. There are over 7 billion cell phones in the world. There's a cell phone essentially for every human being on the planet. Uh, And there's very rapidly uh, 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 a shift toward Uh, smartphones, uh, obviously in the most developed uh, and affluent nations first. But uh, one thing that that, uh, has been a a huge success about the standardization of mobile communications is that uh, cell phones have become affordable, even in in the poorest nations, and had a tremendous impact on uh, increasing productivity. I mean, think about uh, uh, how uh, a cell phone changes the way a farmer in Africa, for example, uh, can uh, go about uh, his business. He, he can call ahead to find out whether the market is, own, is open on a particular day to take his crops uh, to sell. Um, so in, in developing nations in particular, uh, the benefits of technologies like mobile communications that are made possible through standardization are really enormous. So that's a bit of, of the standard-setting process. Tell us a, in a more
0: granular way about how decisions are made at IEEE. So you have a working group. I assume just any, any engineer in the world who wants to join this particular working group can, or is it uh, uh, Do you have to get admitted in some way? Tell, tell us a bit about right. who, who is on the uh, IEEE
1: working groups. The the IEEE uh, will have uh, working groups for a particular standard, um, and so uh, to use my earlier examples, uh, um, and, we'll, and well, this would be true of other working group, other standard setting organizations as well. There, you know, there may be a, p- a particular technical problem that the working group is addressing, battery life, or um, in the case of Wi-Fi interconnection, you know. Um, uh, not over the cellular network, but over, over uh, uh, a wireless connection to uh, the internet. Um, and those working groups uh, are have representatives from uh, the interested parties, the, the companies that may be developing technologies uh, to address a particular uh, uh, technical challenge, or the companies that uh, will uh, be building the uh, products that will be incorporating whatever standardized uh, solution comes out of the deliberations of the working group. Uh, and it's a consensus driven uh, process. Um, it is a process uh, where, uh, uh, until 2015, in, the, in this change in policy at the IEEE, the decision to adopt one technology over another was made, based solely on. Um, the engineering and scientific um, merits of one particular technological solution versus another. Um, I should probably say a little bit about the difference between um, implementation patents and standard essential patents. What, what is it that uh, uh, that the participants in this process are agreeing to do, and, and for whose benefit are they agreeing to do this? Once a particular technology is selected by a uh, a working group uh, in a standard setting organization, uh, and it's adopted into the standard, then parties start designing their products uh, in the downstream market around that standard. Uh, So these technologies uh, usually are um, useful and novel and non-obvious, so they're patentable. Uh, So a party who, Um, intends to file a patent, or has an application pending, or has a patent already issued on a particular technology, Uh, could go to the working group and say, I think my solution to this problem is the best. You really ought to select my my technology for adoption into the standard, uh, instead of these other uh, technical uh, solutions offered by um, other parties. And if you select my technology, my tech then, then and then people start designing products around that, then my technology becomes essential to the standard essential to the products that implement the standard. So my patent is then a standard essential patent. well uh, under American patent law, a patent in- enables you to exclude others from using your invention unless you come to terms with them. That is, unless uh, they that the parties ag- agree to take a license from you and pay you what uh, you think is an appropriate uh, royalty for the use of your patent. So, uh, something that's fundamentally different about a, a standard-setting organization, which, as I said before, is a is a contractual institution. It's a it, it's the result of voluntary exchange among all these parties. Is that the uh, the party who Whose technology is selected to be the standard for a particular uh, aspect of this, um, the, the the standard for to solve a particular technological solution, agrees to license that uh, patent uh, to anybody who wants to use it to implement the standard on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, and that's abbreviated as FRAND, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. So in other words, the patent holder whose technology is chosen agrees that he's not going to use it himself exclusively. He'll make it available to anybody who wants to and will do so on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms if you're willing to take a license uh, that's fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. And this is an area where there's been a great deal of of controversy. What is the meaning of FRAND? uh, licensing. Now in contrast to a standard essential patent which is also called a, a, an SEP or a SEP, there are other patents that aren't essential to implementing the standard but they may be very complementary to um, the devices that are produced that, that do implement the standard. So these are known as implementation patents or they're, they're standard inessential if you like. Uh, and they're not subject to a Frand obligation. Uh, the owners of those patents can decide whether or not they want to exploit them exclusively themselves. I mean, if you were a downstream manufacturer of cell phones, for example, you might have some technology, you know, relating to the calendar on the smartphone or something that was particularly advantageous. And and uh, it's not necessary in order for somebody to make a smartphone, but it might differentiate your product. So you might choose not to license it to others, To Know, competitors in the, in the downstream market. Or uh, you might offer it, but uh, on, uh, strictly on terms that are satisfactory to you and that might strike others as being too high. So that's a big distinction. Standard essential patents versus implementation patents. The standard-setting organizations uh, until uh, earlier this year uh, at the IEEE did not give any guidance on what uh, is the method for determining uh, a, a royalty for a standard essential patent that is fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. Th- that's an, a, an economic um, line of analysis uh, that was, was never fleshed out before uh, this year by any of the standard-setting organizations.
0: So tell us how Earlier this year, uh, the IEEE started to uh, change its patent policy. How did that come about? And uh, was it consistent with the consensus approach that the IEEE usually has? Uh,
1: the the IEEE um, uh, proposed uh, last year uh, to make certain changes to the... Uh, Uh, It's intellectual property policies um, that would specify certain kinds of methodologies or approaches to calculating what a fran royalty would be. Uh, And these uh, developments um, were happening in parallel with lots of litigation taking place in courts and before arbitral uh, uh, panels to interpret Uh, what a fran royalty is as a matter of contract law. Uh, The IEEE proposals also uh, were um, uh, parallel to or in response to uh, the urging of the antitrust division of the U.S. Department of Justice for standard-setting organizations to try to give greater clarity to what um, their uh, licensing policies were, and in particular what uh, the policies relating to the setting of brand royalties um, are. And, and the, the, the antitrust division generally has been concerned uh, about two kinds of of uh, economic uh, theories of harm here. One uh, known as patent holdup and the other uh, royalty stacking. Um, The idea of patent holdup is that once the uh, standard-setting organization has picked a particular technology to solve a particular technological challenge, then all of the uh, implementers of that uh, get locked into using that technology. And if the patent holder uh, demands too high a royalty, uh, the implementers have no... Uh, alternative at that point. Uh, It takes too long, costs too much to redesign their products around the standard, and that that would defeat the whole purpose of having standards in the first place. Uh, So the first concern is that the patent holder, the holder of a standard essential patent, might uh, uh, charge more than than, uh, uh, what that patent is contributing to uh, the standardization process. Now, how would that happen in practice? Well, remember, um, uh, I said that uh, before you put a contractual overlay of the standard-setting organization on top of patent law, patent law gives the patent holder the right to exclude somebody who's not willing to pay to use Mm -hmm. the patent, somebody who, in other words, is an infringer. Uh, If I have a piece of land and somebody is infringing my rights in the sense of trans, uh, tr- trespassing across my land, I can put up a fence. Um, yeah. You can't put up a fence around intellectual property. Uh, somebody it, uh, uh, can use it, uh, and your recourse is is only t- to to try to go to court and get an injunction saying stop using it, or in the alternative, pay me a royalty. But since uh, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in the eBay case, it's been very difficult for a patent uh, holder to get uh, an injunction against um, a party that uh, the patent holder alleges is infringing a, a valid and enforceable patent. So the, the holdup uh, thesis is only as plausible as the, the assertion that the, pat- the holder of the standard essential patent can get an injunction and force uh, the, uh, the implementer who has not yet taken a license uh, to stop infringing the patent, stop making the downstream product. And it's a practical matter, the courts are just not going to issue those. Uh, there, there's one other place you can go, and that's the International Trade Commission. Mm-hmm. That The ITC uh, has been more willing to grant what's known as an exclusion order, which is similar to an injunction that a court would issue, except that an exclusion order um, prohibits the importation into the United States of a product that uh, would violate uh, a valid patent held by a valid patent in the United States. So it, it's sort of an injunction at the water's edge, if you will, uh, as opposed to an injunction uh, uh, generally. Um, so that's the, the the patent holdup concern, the royalty stacking concern of the antitrust division and you know, various academics and and, and companies uh, that are implementers of of these technologies is that if you have many different uh, holders of standard essential patents uh, whose technology gets used to make something like a smartphone, and if each one of them is charging um, more than, than a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory price for its technology, and you start stacking up all of those um, separate royalty demands, you get a royalty stack that is excessively high relative to the price that can be charged for the downstream product, and the profit margin gets squeezed, and the downstream product ultimately may not be produced. That's, that's the, um, uh, the mm-hmm. dire prediction of the royalty stacking uh, uh, theory or conjecture. Now, both of these are, are theoretical arguments, and economists uh, evaluate theoretical arguments at both at the level of theory and at the level of empiricism. Uh, they, they ask what, um, what evidence is there that uh, this theory is borne out in practice. Uh, there, there is uh, very little, if any, evidence Uh, that uh, in in the smartphone area uh, uh, that products are not successfully being brought to market because a royalty stack is too high. Um, There was a a case recently that came out of the Eastern District of Texas where the chief judge there said that the parties, uh, the the alleged infringer uh, was Raising as defense arguments that, uh, that the rates that were being sought by the, the holder of standard central patents um, contained hold up value and that there was a royalty stacking going on and the judge said they had an opportunity to introduce actual evidence that this exists and, and were unable to and The case went up to the federal S- circuit, which is the exclusive appellate court for patent litigation in, in the United States and uh, on that aspect of the lower court decisions, the Federal Circuit affirmed and said that before you can uh, go to the jury with an instruction about uh, patent holdup and royalty stacking, the party making that argument has to establish as a factual matter that that it's actually occurring. It can't be a purely uh, speculative, theoretical um, assertion that's being made.
0: Let's come back to the IEEE. Now, we know they have working groups that have lots of uh, lots of engineers who are specialists mm-hmm. in a particular area, and they get together and they, they work on standards. Does the IEEE have a, a working group on patent policy? Do, do they have a working group with patent attorneys and economists who sit around trying to figure out what the right patent
1: policy is? Uh, there is a patent um, committee yes that uh, and it was involved in uh, rewriting the um, uh, these IEEE um, rules regarding uh, the setting of of, of Fran royalties um, and there are patent lawyers uh, who attend those 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 meetings uh, I'm less whether there are economists who participate in that, but, but certainly the big companies, big tech companies have economists in-house who, who uh, at least at the company level, are involved in these kinds of discussions. Whether they actually attend the, the uh, IEEE meetings, I don't know.
0: Uh, can you give us any insight into how the, uh, the new... Well, tell us what the new patent policy is that the IEEE came up with and, and how it came about. And, and why why did the IEEE come up with a new patent policy?
1: Right the the new policy of the IEEE uh lays out uh, certain um, approaches or frameworks for determining what a what a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory royalty is for a standard essential patent. Uh, and uh, the, the key elements are uh, familiar arguments that have uh, been raised in, in the litigation that I, I was uh, telling you about. Uh, for example, uh, the, the value of the uh, particular patent in question is based on uh, its, its incremental value relative to the, to the technology not selected, um, and cannot take into account the value of the standard itself. Um, so it's it's a, an attempt to focus solely on 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 an incremental basis the tech the technological characteristics of the chosen uh, patent. Uh, the the royalty base uh, is uh, should be uh, according to the IEEE, uh, the smallest patent-practicing component in the device, uh, and, and this is an interesting question that I mean, th- this is the subject of a great deal of litigation uh, by the patent bar uh, within uh, a smartphone. There, there is a, a baseband chip, and that chip um, uh, physically. Uh, uh, is, is where uh, a lot of patented technology sits. But the, but the patented technology that sits on that chip in turn uh, permits all kinds of other functionalities, all kinds of functionalities of the phone to, to, um, uh, to be, be possible. Uh, in commercially negotiated licenses between um, holders of standard essential patents and, and implementers, you know, the manufacturers of devices, What's typically uh, done is to set a royalty that is some percentage of the retail price of the downstream product, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, some percentage of the of a price of a component within the smartphone. Um, and there are also um, licenses that are set up at, uh, as a flat rate, you know, so much per device or um, uh, but it, it is not the norm uh, for uh, voluntarily negotiated licenses to use as the royalty base the the chipset rather than the entire product Now the economic intuition behind that I think is that there uh, is enormous complementarity. Uh, uh, among the technologies used in the smartphone. And there are also network effects that are generated by the, the um, widespread adoption by consumers of these downstream products, like smartphones. So if you have 7 billion smartphones in the world, that's a lot of people who can send and receive email wirelessly, for example, or or send a photograph, something like that. Um, the... Um, Another aspect of the, um, the the rules adopted by the IEEE is that no, uh, if, if you're going to look at comparable licenses mm-hmm. as a some basis for um, determining what a fair uh, royalty mm-hmm. would be, you cannot consider licenses that were negotiated uh, with the threat of an injunction present uh, or an exclusion order. Uh, is there such a thing? Well, the problem, of course, is that, I think there, there are a couple of problems. Number one, since the, the Supreme Court decided the eBay standard, um, injunctions have been far less available to patent holders generally, including st- holders of standard essential patents. Um, but, Beyond that, the IEEE uh, defines uh, a prohibitive order uh, as in such a way uh, that uh, there, there are essentially no comparable licenses that currently exist that could be used uh, for purposes of setting a rate. Now, that's a problem from an economist's perspective because the value of looking... Uh, uh, at comparable licenses is that these are, are licenses that were actually negotiated in the marketplace between parties. Right. As opposed to uh, some rate that was calculated based on a, a theoretical construct. Uh, I have to say uh,
0: in my understanding is this cell phone might have 700 to 1,000 patents on uh, various parts of it. and uh, this sounds an awful lot like the FCC's efforts at TELRIC pricing uh, a couple decades ago. Uh, just
1: abstract theory.
0: How, how do you go about
1: implementing this in reality? If, if uh... Well, I think there are a lot of similarities uh, to the TELRIC experience. I mean, there, uh, after the 1990s, nine, 1996 Telecom Act was passed, the local phone companies were obliged to lease pieces of their network to competitors uh, on the basis of of some uh, pricing formula that was not defined in the statute that Congress enacted. And so the Federal Communications Commission adopted uh, very voluminous orders setting up a a pricing framework uh, that had never been used before. looking at particular pieces of the network and saying, what would be the value of the network with this particular component, like a copper loop going from here to central office down the street, versus the value of the network without that. And that's the long-run incremental cost of that network element. Um, And that that was known as TELRIC, Total Element Long-Run Incremental Cost. And it was literally a, a construct that was created... Uh, in August of 1996, when the FCC put out its its uh, proposed rulemaking, and if you searched uh, on Lexus or you know some other kind of database, you'd find no reference to to telric pricing before August of 1996. So it was a kind of pure blank slate theoretical approach to doing something. Uh, and I think that that uh, in the context of, of determining FRAND royalties for standard essential patents, we have a similar um, kind of challenge here because the, um, there, there's an academic literature that then has been uh, sort of embraced by um, the antitrust authorities and it's been embraced by the, by the companies that see um, uh, the reduction of, of patent royalties as something that's beneficial to their businesses. Uh, and that gets translated then into sort of a, this, an, an abstract uh, model of calculating what the ex ante incremental value of a chosen technology is. So, when you actually litigate one of these uh, cases in federal district court or or arbitrate it in front of a, a panel of arbitrators, there will be a lot of lip service paid to these theoretical principles, but. When you actually have to compute a royalty, they're not uh, feasible, really, uh, sure. uh, because uh, the the data typically are not in existence, uh, and and so the computational techniques that are used fall back to much more modest a- attempts to um, look at comparable licenses, to uh, extrapolate from other kinds of uh, uh, rates paid. I mean, in, in the first case that was decided in federal district court, Judge Robart in the state of Washington uh, looked at patent pools where the rates are, are substantially lower than you would expect to see for standard essential patents. And then he used a kind of formula to gross that up. Well, that kind of approach, if it were put forward by an expert economic witness, might very well be uh, considered inadmissible because uh, under the federal rules of evidence as interpreted by the federal courts because uh, it it wouldn't be based on methodology that was well established in the literature and so forth. So we're at a very difficult point uh, right now in terms of trying to implement these theoretical principles in a way that's not quite ad hoc.
0: Why did the IEEE adopt these standards? Was it was it a consensus decision, or was this uh, a, a disputed decision?
1: Uh, well, there were certainly companies that that were very vocal uh, uh, in expressing opposition to it. Uh, the, the companies that, that tend to be the net licensors rather mm-hmm. than net licensees of standard essential technology: Qualcomm, um, Ericsson, Nokia, are the, are the Um, ones that immediately come to mind. But there are other companies, too, that expressed concern. On the other side, you you have large, uh, mainly Silicon Valley companies that are big users of of technology. And uh, they were very supportive of the IEEE uh, uh, proposed bylaw amendments.
0: Tell us about what the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department did uh, sure
1: I, I think it's it 's useful to ask why would the Antitrust division get involved in this because so far we 've been talking about patent law and and the antitrust division is is strictly speaking supposed to be enforcing antitrust law it 's not a uh, It has no general mandate to make patent policy in the United States. There is a process uh, at the antitrust division for private parties to come forward if they have some kind of transaction that they think might raise antitrust issues, uh, to get what's known as a business review letter. And uh, why would you seek a business review letter? Well, uh, our principal antitrust statute is the Sherman Act. And Section 1 of the Sherman Act says that any contract, combination, or conspiracy in restraint of trade is unlawful. And in particular, if it's a contract or or Agreement between firms that are competitors of one another, and particularly if it's an agreement that concerns price, uh, the the agreement may be uh, very uh, 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 subject to uh, antitrust scrutiny because of its potential to uh, restrict competition. Here, we're talking about Uh, a standard setting organization acting at the urging of members that are buyers of technology to adopt rules that would have uh, the uh, intended purpose of lowering the rates that are paid for standard essential patents. Uh, So uh, even though the companies may be involved in different Making different products, mm-hmm. they are they they are all uh, buyers of, of, right. of inputs, just the way they would be buyers of you know labor inputs uh, in, in the tech sector. Uh, so the antitrust issue would be: Are these firms uh, engaging in activity that would um, explicitly or implicitly facilitate collusion in the setting of rates for standard essential patents, by amending uh, uh, the bylaws of the IEEE in such a way as to put in place formulas that would be guaranteed to lower standard essential patent royalties relative to what would result in the absence of, of those, those bylaw changes. Um, I, I should probably clarify, the FRAND royalty framework still envisions each particular company that's an implementer negotiating with each particular company that has a portfolio of standard essential patents. So in other words, it still envisions bilateral negotiations. But what the IEEE bylaw amendments create as an overlay is a set of principles for how that royalty can be calculated and above which it's then deemed to be no longer fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory and therefore a breach of the, the... the FRAND obligation. And so, in that sense, it's like a TELRIC pricing model that's being imposed on, on patent royalty rates. FCC is not setting the rates, they're just setting the, form, the, the
0: structure. Right, right. right. And yeah. anybody
1: who, who has ever worked in regulated industries knows that um, some particular pricing uh, models are guaranteed to generate higher or lower right. rates than, than other models.
0: IEEE's been around for a long time. The antitrust division's been around for a long time. Uh, Did uh, the antitrust division write business review letters on IEEE patent policy in the
1: past, or is this
0: the first time they've done that? Uh,
1: They they have. Uh, The antitrust division has issued uh, uh, business review letters in the past uh, relating to the IEEE, uh, it, it's never uh, been asked to uh, give a business review letter uh, on proposals that, that are as, as specific as these are in terms of setting the parameters for, for uh, rates for standard essential patents.
0: In the past, did the antitrust division ever find that the, um, uh, the, the FRAND approach that yeah, Tripoli had in the past was somehow anti-competitive. N-
1: no, 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 not that's not my understanding. I mean, th- there there was discussion. I mean, there, there's been a recognition uh, uh, in the past that that uh, there is a potential for uh, collusion among buyers. Uh, of, of technology inputs. Uh, I think what's really striking about the 2015 visitor uh, review letter uh, issued by the Antitrust Division is that it spends almost no time uh, analyzing why it is it concludes that that is not a serious concern. It spends much more space in, in a 16-page letter uh, explaining why it thinks patent holdup and patent and royalty stacking are our concerns and that and uh the, the antitrust division concludes that uh, these particular bylaw changes by the I- IEEE will reduce likelihood of a patent holdup and royalty stacking. Therefore that's a good thing. So that is the benefit that is perceived by the antitrust division. And the cost that would be weighed against that, the cost of a a buyer cartel uh, is uh, considered to be unlikely. Now, why is it considered to be unlikely uh, by the Antitrust Division? Uh, uh, The Antitrust Division says that um, what it's doing here, uh, well, the, the bylaws that are being proposed and which are being reviewed by the Antitrust Division are consistent with the general direction of the law, that's evolving uh, uh, within the federal circuit and the in the district courts on patent law, which I don't agree with. I think the the D link case that I mentioned a minute ago, I think, is completely mischaracterized by the Justice Department. The, the D link case actually expresses skepticism about uh, the validity of the holdup and and stacking conjectures. But but a couple other points that the the Justice Department makes is that. Uh, Uh, companies that uh, contribute technology to standard-setting organizations, they don't have to uh, submit a letter of assurance in the future. That's technically how you make these commitments. You say, I've got this technology. I'm proposing it to the standard-setting organization to adopt into the standard, and I will assure that I will make it available to all comers on on FRAN terms. Uh, So the Justice Department is saying, well, these companies could could refrain from issuing a letter of assurance now that's not much of a uh, of a, resp- of a of a response to the concern in my opinion because if a party is not making is not submitting a letter of insurance of assurance to the standard setting organization it's far less likely to have its technology adopted in the future uh, and and furthermore it, it undermines the whole purpose of of the standard setting process you, you want the participants to um, you want to facilitate the adoption of standards. You want to reduce the transactions costs of deciding um, how a particular technological challenge will be solved, and mm-hmm. so that there's interoperability among products. And then the the, the last thing that the antitrust division uh, mentions as well, they if a, a company that develops technology that it would like to um, Contribute to a standard de- determines that these new terms are unattractive. You know, it doesn't have to participate in the standard setting. But again, that that begs a question. I mean, that that's essentially saying the standard setting process then will be broken. the the, the SSO model uh, will wither away. It'll morph into something else, which it might. And and uh, and I and. Um, I mean, there's no guarantee that standard-setting organizations as we've known them over the last decade or two uh, are, are the best possible way of achieving this uh, interoperability of products, but it, it's what has evolved so far. And, and so to adopt policies that create an incentive for firms that have made major contributions to the standard over time and, uh, and mm-hmm. have portfolios of hundreds of thousands of 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 patents that that have been used up to this day to want to back away from the standard-setting organization I think is something that ought to cause great pause.
0: Did did either the IEEE patent policy or the antitrust division business review letter, did either of them specifically address innovation uh, and the potential effects of uh, the new patent policy on
1: innovation? Uh, the, the the 2015 IEEE letter um, uh, ha- has some g- general platitudes about that, but there's there, there's nothing very nothing profound empirical or, in or, or, in there, or yeah. sustained. No, nothing empirical. Uh, it, the
0: European standard setting body do they have similar patent policies?
1: Etsy has not gone down this path um, to date, uh, and my impression is that uh, they are um, uh, expressing a great deal of caution about following the IEEE, but we'll we'll see. Uh,
0: Is it possible that a a foreign government that is... uh, Considering taking antitrust action against an American corporation, uh, are they going to look at the DOJ Business Review letter and sort of say, "Aha, this is uh, a little bit more ammunition in our case
1: against the American corporation"? Well, this is uh, a larger problem than just standard essential patents and and uh, these Business Review letters um, w- we've been talking about. Uh, The American antitrust agencies say and do things which then get repeated uh, by antitrust agencies in other countries. It's important to understand that other countries do not necessarily view competition law uh, the same way Americans uh, do. Uh, It's it's much more likely uh, in some foreign countries that competition law is used as a kind of industrial policy. and not to promote competition, not necessarily to advance consumer welfare. So I think that that uh, is a problem in general with antitrust uh, enforcement. It's important for American officials to think about how uh, foreign enforcement agencies might choose to uh, misinterpret what American uh, enforcers are doing. Uh, And I think it's certainly that, that danger exists with respect to um, pronouncements that the U.S. antitrust enforcement agencies make about uh, the likelihood that patent holdup and, and royalty stacking are, are occurring and the assumptions that are being made about whether the, those problems, if they exist at all, are of sufficient magnitude and severity to, to justify some kind of policy response. Let me open it up to the floor for questions. I've got a lot more for Greg. But um,
0: we're going to pass the microphone along. And uh, please identify yourself
2: uh, when you ask the question. Um, My name is Dan Priebus. Do you approve or disapprove of the IEEE's policy that permits uh, patent owners uh, during the standard development stage to declare what the maximum royalty rates are that they would uh, charge if their technology is adopted into a standard.
1: Uh, can, you, can you speak into the microphone? Yes. Uh,
2: do you approve or disapprove of the IEEE's uh, policy, which the Antitrust Division has also approved, of permitting um, patent owners during the standards development stage to declare uh, the maximum royalty rates that they would charge if their technology is adopted into a standard? And as a second part to that, uh, do you have any views as to why that practice is not um, more widely being utilized as a means of uh, providing greater, greater clarity uh, in terms of FRIEND terms?
1: Well, if it's a, uh, uh, a voluntary, um, Statement of, of pricing policy by the uh, uh, party proposing uh, that its technology be adopted. I I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, I don't I don't have a um, an answer for why it's it's not more commonly done. Uh, I, I know it certainly has been the case that some companies that are large that are holders of large portfolios of Standard Essential Patents have uh, expressed views as to um, what uh, that company individually uh, thinks uh, would be uh, a desirable ceiling for uh, uh, the Standard Essential Patent royalties to be for a particular device and then what uh, share of that uh, amount the company thinks uh, it has contributed to the standard and therefore implicitly what the maximum uh, royalty uh, it would expect it to charge would be. Uh, one thing I should probably clarify is that uh, while these negotiations take place on a bilateral basis, they're not taking place on a, on a patent by patent basis. They're taking place um, on a portfolio-wide basis. So the implementer uh, is negotiating for a portfolio license from the holder of Standard Essential Patents, and and that portfolio um, oftentimes will contain hundreds or thousands of, 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 of Standard Essential Patents. It's even a little more complicated than that because oftentimes the implementer itself has a portfolio of standard essential patents and is engaging in a cross license with the, um, with the other party. Uh, so you can think of it kind of like, um, and then there's a net balancing payment. You can think of it like going to the, the auto dealership and you have a car that, that you've owned for five or ten years and, and you want to trade it in for a new car, so your car is going to the dealer, the dealer's car is coming to you and there's a net balancing payment. Uh, that you're making to the dealer, um, so the in, in practice the um, the and, and then you have to take into consideration what um, if, if the the norm is uh, cross licenses with net balancing payments. Uh, you have to figure out what the value of of the cross license is, uh, and and essentially convert that into a one way running royalty rate before you can. Have some uh, standard metric for comparing uh, uh, one brand royalty to another. Uh, Gentlemen here in the front, and then
0: the gentleman in the
2: middle. Uh, James Sang, following up on your last remark concerning uh, cross licensing of portfolios, does the new IEEE standard say anything about uh, how what a reasonable and reasonable rates for reasonable fees for total portfolio evaluations. It's, I know uh, that it's, it's very flexible in real life.
3: You're uh, comparing apples and oranges.
1: No, I'm, there, there's not. No, I, I, I don't. I don't recall seeing anything in the bylaw amendments uh, that, that makes a distinction. I mean, as a practical matter, uh, patent litigation um, involves litigating over a handful of patents out of, you know, many patents that could be allegedly infringed. Um, that happens because uh, a district judge only has so much time that can be allocated to a given case, uh, and he or she will tell the parties, well, you know, pick the patents that you're going to litigate over. And then it's beyond that. It's, you know, a a patent is not just a single invention. A patent consists of claims, and there may be 20 or 30 or 40 claims in a patent, and the parties actually litigate over individual claims in a given patent. And uh, an early... uh, Important decision uh, point in the in the litigation is the hearing at which the, the judge engages in claims construction and says, okay, we're going to uh, interpret this particular you know claim number seven of of the such and such patent to have this scope but not that scope, and um, and so it's uh, it's actually a much more uh, uh, involved process of of litigating the scope of the invention than than, uh, might initially appear.
0: The gentleman in the middle, and then the gentleman on the side.
4: Thank you. Um, George, an innovation researcher specifically interested in technical innovation and entrepreneurship. A question uh, I want you to sort of look at the picture in a broader perspective. The value of a patent to a patent developer, technology developer, and or owner, Uh, they look to the value as being the value that they can put on their accounting books, the financial value. That's very good. There are other values that should be important to a corporation or an individual in a business in addition to the financial value. as for example, look at the market share that their technology allows them to participate in, to control market share, which can be market dominance, especially if it's a standard that's sort of a, a quasi legislative market dominance by having a standard and that has a value in addition to the financial value. So there is a financial value and an additional market share social value that I see as uh, something that should be taken into consideration in this sort of grand bargain that by allowing a larger social value, the market share, market domination by the standard, you can accept smaller financial values, but in total, it probably has a total value, meaning addition of the market share value and also the financial value. It's valued more highly that way. It's a net positive. What do you think about that type of analysis?
1: Well, th- this is the uh, the standard argument that's that's made um, by implementers that um, what the uh, the owner of the standard essential patent is getting um, is a much larger market um, in which uh, to sell um, its uh, its particular patented invention um, as a component to some downstream product, and, and you know, essentially the argument is you make up on volume, what what uh, what you give up on on uh, on price, yeah. on price, some kind of unit price, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that the the important an important um, uh, thing to bear in mind. Uh, with respect to that argument, or any argument about the sufficiency of, of compensation for um, a standard essential patent is uh, what uh, what level of compensation is necessary to uh, give uh, a company an incentive to participate in the standard setting process in the first place um, before it commits um, its technology to the standard, uh, the, the company is going to consider alternative uh, means of monetizing its invention. And those alternative means could include uh, using the, the particular technology exclusively on a proprietary basis. It could be committing the technology to another standard setting organization if there is one. I mean, there, there, there have been some Instances of competing standards for, like uh, for DVDs and so forth, um, or uh, licensing the uh, the technology as an implementation standard, uh, implementation patent. In other words, not committing it uh, to the SSO and claiming it to be essential, uh, but just saying uh, we'll license this as an implementation standard, and in 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 a sense, then forbearing from participating in that that aspect of of standard setting. Uh, One of the 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 difficulties that's been encountered in uh, figuring out what the the legal and economic framework is for setting a friend royalty is that we have uh, quite a developed body of law for setting uh, reasonable royalties for patent infringement in the garden variety case of a patent not a standard essential patent but just a patent that one Mm -hmm. party owns and that is infringed by another. And um, very briefly, uh, what the courts ask is, what would the parties have agreed to as a reasonable royalty at the moment that infringement first occurred? Uh, and to answer that question, then, you, you look at a variety of factors, including what are the alternatives that would have been available to the infringer uh, 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 instead of using the particular patent that, that uh, He's being sued to, uh, for infringing. Uh, the problem with applying that directly to standard essential patents is is the the argument about lock-in. Well, by the time the infringement occurs, the parties have already chosen the standard. There is no substitute to which the parties then could have could have turned once once they adopt the technology into the standard. And so, what uh, the some of the academic literature and, and, and some of the, the uh, court uh, opinions uh, to date um, on frant royalties have done, is to say well we, we'll back up the the, the point uh, n- from the time of first infringement to the time of standard adoption. What what are the alternatives available to the standard setting organization at the time of standard adoption? I think that that's an incomplete analysis and, that, and the reason they do that is that they then want to incorporate outside options on the, on the implementer side. But you have to consider the outside options that would be available to uh, the party with the invention. And I think it's appropriate to ask, is there some earlier point in time that, that ought to be uh, uh, used for asking what, uh, what are the terms that the parties would have agreed upon? An earlier point in time at which the, uh, the inventor, is considering what outside options he has for monetizing his uh, invention, uh, rather than um, alternatives to committing it to the standard setting organization. Um, and that's not, I mean, the, as, as I said earlier there, in the cases to date, there there, there tends to be a front part of the opinion that, that, that uh, manipulates a lot of these sort of abstract theoretical principles, then a back end of the opinion that uh, resorts to rather expedient means of computing royalties. The cases so far haven't recognized that you need to, to look at the alternatives that are available to both the, the implementer and the inventor. Um, uh, and so currently, uh, the, the point in time of standard adoption uh, Adds consideration of outside options for the implementer, but it ignores the outside options that would be available to, to the inventor. So one of the points I've I've made in my writings on this is that the the meaning of the of a Frand royalty uh, has to include recognition that the royalty has to be sufficiently attractive to induce the inventor to participate in the standard setting process. If, if if you end up with royalties that are set at a, at a very low rate, you have to ask, would, would this realistically have attracted uh, the party to commit its technology to the standard-setting organization in the first place? Remember, it's all, this is all a, const- uh, hmm. a, 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 a construct of contract law, so it's, it's based on the idea that it's voluntary exchange and there are mutual benefits to the parties.
0: But, but, Greg, what you're saying is the courts uh, look to, um, in essence, a market solution an arm's length, uh, negotiated price between the parties. They don't say we're going to look to some standard-setting body that would have set uh, uh, that constructed price and coming up with the, the royalty rates and your garden variety patent royalty case. Ro- right, right. right.
3: Gentlemen here. Uh, Ted Voorhees Uh, first a real quick follow-up to that question I Do you think the Justice Department has been relatively less concerned about the buyer cartel problem? Because of some view that the standard essential patent aspect adds some additional market power To what the patent owner already had as a monopolist of his patent Just is that a possibility of that you think the Justice Department is relatively less concerned? But I have, I have my question, which is, uh, to what extent is it uh, realistic to think that a standard-setting body might select two s- standards, essential patents for the same application, requiring them to comply with interoperability, but that would unleash market forces that would allow the buyers to bid, so to speak, for one or the other? Or is that just an unrealistic uh, scenario? Thank you.
1: Well, I think the second question uh, is more um, a a technology-related question that that will probably be highly fact-dependent. If if there really are two, well, I'm not aware of of standard-setting organizations doing that sort of thing trying to write the standard broadly enough so that you could um, uh, use two different technologies to, to solve the, the, the problem. Uh, it's possible that uh, standard-setting organizations will evolve in that direction. That, that may be one of the uh, implications of the, of the debate over SCPs and hold up and royalty stacking and so forth. Uh, uh, But I'm not aware of of that being done uh, currently. Uh, And your first question was uh, the relative uh, concern that the Antitrust Division has over buyer cartel issues on the one hand and the increment of market power that it attributes to the adoption of the technology into the standard. Um, and I would say, yeah, that's, the, that's trade-off that it's, it's, it's positing. Uh, but uh, in, in my opinion, uh, it's uh, assuming uh, that there uh, is a problem with respect to the exploitation of, of that market power. Uh, When the patent is adopted into the standard, and it's essentially ignoring uh, the possibility that the buyer cartel uh, risk is is real.
0: With that, I promised I would get our get Greg out of here by 1:30. Please join me in thanking Greg for a wonderful presentation.